Well, good evening, everybody. Um, I'm speaking from Poplar Baptist Church, and we're at our, on our Bible study evening. Um, welcome to those online. Welcome to all of those in the church. Uh, good to see you tonight. And uh, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer, so let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you that we have this privilege of looking into the word of God. And we pray, Lord, that you will bless us as we think on themes, Lord, in the word and also from history uh, to encourage us, Lord, and challenge us about um, our future lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I I want to read from uh, Proverbs um, chapter 15 and verse 7, which is on page 638 in the church Bibles. Um, But in fact, this is a um, a fairly wide-ranging study of this verse because um, a lot of what I'll be talking about is the way that that verse is applied in history, um, as well as uh, thinking about the application for today of those words. I'll read it again, page 638, chapter 15, verse 7. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, but not so the heart of fools. Now, I want to uh, explain. I'm going to be talking tonight about the way the gospel brought light to Europe in the 16th century. Although, in fact, I'm going to be talking mainly uh, tonight about the, the centuries leading up to the Reformation, which is the name of that great explosion of truth and the gospel, that great spreading out of the knowledge of God once more in Europe, which for, um, for centuries the word of God had, had, had been reduced to a trickle of truth from individuals, isolated individuals, small, very small communities that were being persecuted and stamped out over the whole of Europe. And uh, I want to, uh, to think of uh, uh, the lessons of Scripture, verses of Scripture, dealing with this question of the communication of the knowledge of God. Uh, after all, you know, we are told in Scripture that the destiny of this world is that the world shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And... Uh, when the uh, writer of Proverbs says, the lips of the wide, wise spread knowledge, it's pretty clear that um, people are involved in that great explosion of truth, that great flood of truth that goes out into the world. And it's the lips of the wise that spread knowledge. And indeed, Christians, as we'll see, we look at Jesus' teaching, Christians are meant to be the wise servant who does the master's will and therefore uh, causes uh, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ's gospel to spread out uh, to the edges, edge of the world. Now you'll see that I've, uh, I've called the title The Twilight of the Reformation or The Dawn of a New One because here's the challenge. Uh, when we see what an amazing spread of truth and light came in actually a matter of a few decades uh, in the Reformation, Um, And really, in the succeeding centuries, how much the truths of the Bible started to transform the cultures of those who who, uh, followed Reformation teaching. And now we look upon a culture in which this truth is rapidly dying out, not amongst Christians, but in our society as a whole, amongst those who make laws, those who uh, apply the laws, Uh, our media, and uh, the main ways in which we get knowledge. The knowledge of God is being suppressed in many areas. So I'm hoping that we'll be challenged, um, but also uh, encouraged um, by thinking about uh, those those times centuries ago as well as uh, our world today. Um, I want to uh, notice this, that... um, In the period leading up to the 16th century, there had been two or three centuries when the whole of Europe, being run by a centralized church in Rome, 
which had control of churches from Croatia right the way through to Ireland. You know, from, from the south, from Italy, right the way up to northern countries. Uh, of course, there were other churches in the world. There was, the, of course, the Orthodox churches in Russia and so on, and in, the, in uh, or the beginnings of it in, in parts of, of uh, Russia. But, of course, the Orthodox church in Greece. Um, but the whole of what we were today, uh, that, uh, the, or most of what we'd call Europe, apart from the farthest northern parts, were under the control of one centralized power in one city in Italy, in Rome. And uh, the church as a whole, in all of these different countries, everybody knew there was something wrong. And we'll go into what appeared to be wrong to the people in those days. And uh, uh, we notice that um, medieval Europe, as we call this period, uh, period of the Middle, a- uh, the Middle Ages later, later on, leading up to uh, you know, the 16th century, the year 1500 onwards, the whole of this area that was, had a centralized church was largely de- devoid, largely empty of basic Bible truths. Um, one, the problem was the Bible was in Latin. Now, we have the Bible in English. We have the Bible in the common language of the day. The Bible was in Latin, and this wasn't even the common language of the preachers. Most, uh, most priests were not experts in Latin at all. Some of them had a little Latin. Many of them had hardly any Latin at all, and they would read from the Bible in Latin, but they wouldn't understand what it meant. Let alone could they do a Bible study like we're doing tonight, looking at a few verses of Scripture and applying it uh, to normal life. The only way people learned, really, about Jesus was stories, plays. You know, and we have these famous mystery plays that were, were, uh, are still sometimes performed in parts of England today. But actually... There were not that many people that saw mystery plays. People go on about mystery plays. But actually, uh, mystery plays weren't available in every part of England. There were certain areas that had them, and, and people could come to know some of the stories of Jesus, not, not necessarily in any, in any great biblical detail. But the Bible was, um, you know, people were lar- largely totally ignorant of the Bible. And this is true not just in, in England, but all over Europe. There was a religion with a form where you would have a very ornate church building, you'd have crosses, you'd have statues, you'd have people going through a service of worship in Latin, which some priests didn't even understand what they were saying when they went through it. And you had a people that really knew nothing of, or next to nothing, of the teaching of the New Testament. Now, actually, now I want to actually just challenge us about Britain today. Is, is Britain any, any better off? We have this marvellous gift of the Bible in, a, in the common language. How many people under 40 have read this Bible? I mean, if I ask the same question, has anybody here read um, the works of Shakespeare? Uh, just read them, you know, got the book at home and just gone through it and, and read it. Have you? I have, but not many people have, you know. And Actually, most people under the age of 40, when I'm talking to them, they've never read the Bible as an adult. And many of them haven't even read it as a child. When I asked that question 20 years ago to people, 20, 30 years ago to people, have they read the Bible? Most of them would say, well, I did read it at Sunday school. Because large numbers of people in Britain had actually been exposed to the Bible in Sunday school, or actually in school. But schools gave up the teaching of scripture lessons in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, and replaced it with religious studies, which means that only if you do it GCSE, uh, not that many kids do that, would you actually look at uh, the Bible, and even then you're not going to be looking at it in much detail. And anyway, when you're studying something, you're not really interested so much in the spiritual content of it. So actually, you know, I mean, so talking about you know, the, the, the twilight of the Reformation, uh, actually during the Reformation, it was said that a plowman could understand the Bible and was reading the Bible as the Bible became more available over the next uh, over the next few centuries after the Reformation started. Just ordinary people could sit down and read the Bible. How many? What percentage of our population today is familiar with and reads the Bible? Are we actually entering the twilight of the Reformation, or maybe 
maybe we could be at the beginning of a new age, of a new reformation. If the church spreads the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea in our society, which hopefully uh, we'll kind of look at uh, uh, later on in my talk. But I, I said a minute ago, medieval Europe knew that there was something radically wrong with the church. Now, they didn't say to themselves, oh, I'm not hearing the gospel, because they didn't know what the gospel was. But what they saw in the established church was ignorance, because many uh, of their priests were ignorant and uneducated people who had gone into it for a career to make a living for themselves, but actually had no real interest. They were many, in many uh, times, there was corruption, greed, and careerism in the church. And so many ordinary people, many middle class, we call them today, and many, uh, many nobles in the church, in every country in Europe, saw there was a problem with the church. But, and, and they wanted change, but they didn't actually, they didn't actually uh, realize the source of this, which was um, that, in fact, the Bible was no longer being taught. If we look at uh, the, the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th century in, in Europe, and it's the same in Britain as in other, in other countries, the church was the largest employer of anybody in the whole of Europe. And if you wanted to become you know, a really prominent person and, and rich, it was a pretty good route to become a, uh, you know, to, to actually get into the, you know, the greasy pole, climbing the ladder. Uh, of, uh, of uh, you know, church career. Um, in the church, for instance, it was quite possible for someone um, to um, be given the, um, the responsibility for one, two, three, four, five, six parishes, all, you know, with thousands of people in each. Really, only, uh, only one or two people could look after all of those people in their parishes, parishes, but they would be given it as a gift and what would come from those parishes would not be hard labor and sweat of going out and pastoring these people. It would actually be the taxes that came to the, to, in other words, the emoluments, the money that came to the vicars, uh, well, not the vicars, but the, the priests and the others employed in, uh, in, in these churches. And it was the same with bishops. Bishops could be given uh, you know, a, a number of bishoprics and be in charge of these things, and they would never visit them. And people realized this. There was gross immorality in the nunneries and in the, and in the monasteries. People knew about it. Men and women who dedicated themselves to the Lord were living in some, some cases in places not much better than brothels. And the, the thing is that um, people knew about this. They also knew that the church protected itself so that if a priest was uh, involved in a serious crime, he could not be um, prosecuted by the secular authorities. It had to go to a church court. There were cases of uh, priests who were murderers. Um, but they weren't prosecuted by the secular courts, and they wouldn't be executed by the church, and they evaded the, the, normal, the normal laws of the land in those days. So people you know, really you know, were, 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 were troubled by this. The scandal of, of uh, the immorality, the, the, the way that uh, all, all kinds of religious procedures were used to blackmail people. Like, if, if someone was excommunicated in those days, this meant that they could no longer go to communion. Now, this, of course, is in church discipline. This is right. I mean, in, in, in Baptist churches, if someone is un, has done something terribly wrong, you know, and they won't repent then they won't be uh, permitted to take uh, the bread and the wine of communion. And, you know, that, that is what the Bible tells us. But you see, what the Catholic Church said was, if you don't take communion, you're going to hell. So if you actually were deprived of the communion, it was thought that that was automatic, automatic, the cursing of you, to, you know, to end up in hell. And often... People were blackmailed over various political issues um, um, with excommunication. A famous king of England was once excommunicated because uh, he had a quarrel with the Pope. And uh, he, was, he, was, uh, he, probably, <laughs> he was a pretty bad guy anyway, so he probably ended up in, uh, there anyway. But the, the basic point was that people realized that the church was using sp so-called spiritual power 
for its own ends of power, influence, and money. Now, I want us to just uh, just make a note here that you know we we live in a, uh, a, a difficult time all over the world. The churches are in different political situations, um, but we know in the last century, church Christian churches have become puppets of Nazism. Soviet communism, for a time, was uh, heavily um, uh, managing uh, uh, churches, and those who were dissident churches. Uh, churchmen often ended up uh, in jail or even even murdered in uh, in Soviet Russia and the Chinese communism. We have the same uh, pressure. Um, the uh, Chinese Communist Party wishes for people to to uh, attend a church, but to actually acknowledge the Communist Party and even almost seem to have a, a veneration uh, of the of the communist leaders in their churches. The removal of crosses and putting up of portraits of Mao Zedong and so on. We live in a world that is changing. Britain, who knows, uh, long after I'm gone, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, who knows what pressures are going to be put upon, upon believers. Now let's, let's remember, the lips of the wise spread knowledge. It is our job to pass on, all of the time, the truth of the Bible. The truths which are going to be incredibly unpopular because they're counter-cultural. Uh, when we uh, when we stand up for the truth today, there will be people that will you know would gladly have us put in jail, but we have to we have to understand that it is our responsibility to disseminate truth. Now, another response actually in uh, in the um, centuries after uh, after the 13th 14th century was not just there's something wrong with the church. But many people um, started to try to have revival movements of all kinds. Um, to, to, you know, to, oh, look, there's got to be something better than being just selfish and corrupt and only after pleasure. And oh, like all these priests are who, who uh, you know, sexually abuse women in the parish and, and they get away with it because they're priests. There's got to be something better than that. And so there are a whole number of uh, springing up of sincere men and women who really wanted to kind of renew their lives by getting closer to God, sometimes by mysticism, by prayer, but certainly by starting off monastic movements. Men going away to live in a monastery, trying to get away from the evil world, pray and study and so on. Uh, you had the, uh, the friars, who were people who, to begin with at least, devoted themselves to preaching what they knew, of the gospel, which wasn't much, or of the Bible. But at least they were trying to do something to bring light in this darkness. Um, these religious orders, I mean, as if, if you read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which is you know, a classic English um, piece of, of uh, fiction written uh, in, the, uh, in the 14th century, um, you'll find pictures of friars and monks and nuns who've succumbed to the corruption, who are just as worldly, just as vain, proud, looking after money as everyone else. These attempts to reform the church didn't work. But there was one thing that had made, well, there were two things, that made a massive change, preparing the way for the Reformation. Now, the one was, again, a humanist cultural response to this corruption that was all over Europe in the church. And the darkness. And I, I think this shows us how God can rule over intellectual fashions to become a search for the true knowledge of the Bible. Now, look, today, can that be true? Could it be true that there's any, I mean, every cultural uh, fashion we see at the moment just seems to lead people further and further away from, uh, from the Lord. But actually, in the, um, in the times of what were called the Renaissances, leading leading up to the great humanist renaissance in the uh, late 15th, early 16th century, there was a desire for learning, a desire to learn the great classical languages, a desire to learn Latin and a desire to learn Greek and to know it properly. Great scholars spent thousands of hours poring over ancient texts, trying to make textbooks to spread on the knowledge of these languages 
And as they were doing this originally, because they were trying to interpret Greek philosophy and various other great classic texts from the past, they then started to realize we can now get back to the real meaning of the Bible. We don't have to rely on an old Latin translation. We can actually learn the actual Greek of the New Testament. And we can know what the Bible really says. Now, this great humanist renaissance is, is often identified with a guy that you may have heard of called Erasmus of, of Rotterdam, who, who um, was able to prepare wonderful uh, texts of, um, of, uh, of the Greek New Testament books. And gradually, until finally, you get a whole New Testament in Greek and a whole series of textbooks and vocabulary books and grammar books to enable people to become experts on what the Bible really means. Now look, Erasmus wasn't a Christian. And he didn't do this because he wanted to find the gospel, because he didn't know what the gospel was, frankly. He, he wanted to recover the Bible so that people would see what Jesus was like. And they want, he wanted to recover it's quite clearly Jesus' teaching about ethics, about right and wrong, about love and, about, uh, and so on. But God used this and used Erasmus to do something amazing. I can remember when I was at school, it was, it, there was a cliche that was used, which people would, because you don't study this sort of uh, uh, person today, apart from in sixth form, usually. Um, um, but uh, there's a, a quotation that says, Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched. Now, Erasmus created... The, the possibilities of, of men like Luther, who were, who were absolutely fundamental to the Reformation, to understand what the Bible actually taught, and then arrived at the gospel. Now, let's pray. Let's pray that these great cultural movements that are happening in our society, God is going to lay hold of, that the word of God may be spread. Now, if, if I give a, uh, I said there were two things. One was Erasmus, but the second, at the same time, or just before Erasmus actually uh, came on the scene to translate um, the Bible, the printing press came on the scene, Gutenberg's printing press. Now, the thing is, you might say printing press, well, that sounds boring. The printing press suddenly made it possible to mass produce Bibles. Now, I've said already that about the, the Bible was li little known and it was in Latin, but there weren't many Bibles. In the whole of Europe, there weren't that many Bibles. No. They, to, to make a Bible, it was a painful, painfully slow task of hand, writing out in hand the Bible. And then Gutenberg experimented and came out with, uh, finally, a, a really efficient printing press. And the result was that suddenly... The it was possible to mass produce the Bible. Now, it, interesting fact, actually, that to begin with, very few Bibles were printed to begin with. Um, it was quite difficult for Gutenberg to make a living, uh, although he, he was able to produce a, a Bible uh, in Latin. Um, and, uh, but who, who, wanted, who wanted these Bibles? To begin with, there wasn't a market. But as the printing press started to be uh, uh, built, copied, built all over European cities. And in 20 years, it spread. the printing press spread into all kinds of uh, areas, all kinds of countries all over Europe. At the same time, Luther came to personal faith. And this mass media instrument suddenly becomes something which the gospel is able to use. You see, because... Uh, to begin with, uh, when Gutenberg's printing press actually you know, first started getting widely used, it started to be used not for Bibles, but actually for, for newsletters. Uh, you know, we might call them newspapers, containing bits of scandal, bits of gossip, history that was being made at the time. And uh, sailors uh, would, uh, you know, would uh, pick up these pamphlets in one port and take them to another port in, in Europe and, and gradually information was being disseminated to those who were educated and those, those who could read uh, Latin, which was the, often the language that, that these things were in. But when Luther was converted, this mass media became something which was changed from being just a medium for tittle-tattle or for interesting news or for uh, speculative theories or for that matter, intellectual tomes, 
It suddenly became something, you know, which Luther himself said was the greatest gift of God <laughs> that had been given uh, for centuries. Because suddenly the teaching of the gospel, tracts, Bibles, were flying everywhere in a very short period of time. Um, when Luther was converted, and when Luther started his, uh, started his, his um, campaign to start preaching the gospel, in a matter, of, a matter of months, his pamphlets were found all over Europe, including England. I mean, we're talking about Luther's in Germany, and it, you know, it takes quite a long time for things to get around, but in fact, in, in a few months, his, his, his teachings was, were, were, going, were flying all over the place. Now, again, I say... We look at Instagram, Facebook, or Metaverse, or whatever it's being called now. Whether we look at, at uh, mainstream media and newspapers and the, new, and the TV, which is just full of darkness. Let's pray that God will give us a new dawn. That in fact, uh, not only will it be the case that uh, people are, are, are preaching millions of sermons, there are of course... Lots of preachers all over Britain and America and all over the world on the internet preaching their sermons, but not many people are listening. But let's pray that, in fact, God will raise up young men who will actually have a, a following as big as anybody on TikTok or any of these other, other, other mediums of the truth of the word of God. We need to pray for this, unless we just want to curl up and, and, and give up. Now, I want us to notice this also. The Christians during the Reformation did not curl up. I just want to think about one person, and just look at a few more texts um, from, um, from the Bible. Um, Wycliffe um, was born in uh, 1328, 1328, 150 years before you, Luther. He was a, John Wycliffe was a, a, a British man, born in Yorkshire. Um, he became a priest, and then he became a pres- professor at the University of Oxford. But because he was a very learned man, unlike most of, uh, most of the clergy in, in, in England, he started to research the teachings of the Bible. And the Lord worked in Wycliffe, he became converted. And he realized, for him... Uh, he, he came to, to see that the most important thing was, was faith in Christ. He said this, Trust wholly in Christ. Rely altogether on his sufferings. Beware of seeking to be justified in any, uh, any other way than by his righteousness. This was some 150 years before Luther. He was preaching what the Bible teaches, that we are justified by faith. We're not justified by, by uh, the life of the monk, of of depriving himself of marriage, of, of uh, restricting his diet to bread and water, of praying all the way through the night, of lying on, on hard beds and, and wearing sackcloth. We're not justified before God by that, but we're justified through the sufferings of Jesus who has died for sinners like me and you. Now, this teaching was from an intellectual university professor, but he, the thing was about Wycliffe, he saw the darkness, the total darkness. And he didn't say, oh, well, I can't do anything about it. I'm just going to... What did he do? Well, firstly, he wrote, he taught, he preached. In the face of people who wanted him burnt alive, eventually, of course, uh, Wycliffe died uh, in the providence of God as quite, a, quite an oldish man for, for those days. Um, but uh, the church wanted him burnt. He was protected by by influ- influential people within uh, the, the political system in, in England that kept him alive. John of Gaunt, particularly, um, uh, was a famous uh, nobleman who, who actually protected him. But not only did he do that, he trained up young men, young students, to go out preaching. And once he died, this movement, although small, did not let up. It was called the Lollard Movement. And these young men went out. Many were burnt alive. Um, for their pains, but the gospel spread. There was an underground church in England before the Reformation actually started under Henry VIII. There was an underground church of men and women who'd come to know Christ. And 
believed in uh, the, the New Testament. Now, how did they believe in the New Testament? Because Wycliffe translated, the, uh, or at least he headed a team that translated the whole of the Bible, and particularly the New Testament, into English, into common, ordinary English that the ordinary person spoke. And so you have a combination of things. People are learning, learning to, to read English in order to read the Bible. Education was starting to spread. And the Bible was starting to spread. And far from just cursing the darkness, as the old cliche goes, he lit a candle. And uh, that candle carried on burning and, and uh, throughout it. Now, why am I saying that? I, again, I'm, 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 we live in this time of darkness, great darkness. And the trajectory doesn't look good. Um, I, uh, I mentioned on, I think, I can't remember whether it was today or yesterday, I mentioned that, yes, it was yesterday, I mentioned that um, I'd heard a, a, a radio program which Church of England bishops were talking about um, um, the possibility of uh, not only of gay clergymen, but of the blessing of homosexual marriages. Now, by the way, the blessing of a homosexual marriage means the blessing of the homosexual act. <laughs> That's what it is. It's not the blessing of nice people. I mean, we all know nice people who are gay. Most of the people I've, that I've met in my life that are gay are very nice people, just the same as everybody else. You know, average, averagely nice people that English people are. Um, but, you know, and of course we want to bless. We want to bless people. Of course, I want to bless it. Homosexual people. I'll help them, care for them, be kind to them, um, do good to them. Of course we want to bless them in that sense, but... What uh, is being talked about at the moment is actually having a homosexual marriage, which implies that the homosexual act, which is defined in the Old Testament as an abomination, and is defined in the New Testament as an expression of rebellion against the Creator God, in the book of Romans, which uh, is is clearly uh, put forward in the Bible as something that is against the will of God and against the holiness of God. Now, bishops in the Church of England are claiming that they want to move on to the blessing of homosexual marriages. Now, uh, I just want to read, because uh, I've kind of researched this after hearing this bit. Um, and so we've got the bishops of Reading, Buckingham and Dorchester all tweeted their endorsement of an essay, uh, which had been published by the Bishop of Oxford, arguing that the C of E should end its refusal to allow same-sex couples to marry in church. And um, uh, altogether there's, there's five who've openly come out. But what was really interesting in this, in this um, radio um, program was that um, there was an interview, and I didn't catch his, who exactly he was, but he was a bishop that's in some doctrine commission in the Church of England or something and he, he was asked his view and, and, he, and he said well of course at the moment we can't uh, we, you know blah 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 we, it's not happening and uh, so on and the, the law of the Church of England is, forbids uh, gay marriages at the moment he said but we all know what, what, where the trajectory is what he meant by that is him and all of his other bishop friends clearly expect that in 10, 20, 30, 40 years whenever it is that that's going to happen in the Church of England, the major church in this country, to actually call darkness light. And uh, the thing is, let's look at Isaiah 8, verse 20. Now, some of you may say, oh, at last, we've got a bit of the Bible. Um, but I, I, the idea of this particular message is, is uh, to actually apply the Bible, a few Bible verses to the cultural situation that we live in today. So if we could turn over to Isaiah 8 and verse 20, we have God speaking through the prophet Isaiah in very clear language about the, um, about the responsibility of those who are true believers and also of the um, uh, awful peril um, of blinding people uh, to the true and clear teaching of the Bible. And uh, it says in uh, 
Well, we'll start at verse 16. Bind up the testimony. Uh, Sorry, this is page 680, if I haven't told you already, 680. Um, Chapter 8, verse 16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. This is clearly Isaiah speaking and praying. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? A solemn responsibility for those who are real believers to seek God and his word, to look into the prophecies of uh, previous prophecies in the Bible And of course, the word of God that was coming through Isaiah in his generation. Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living, to the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now notice, those last words are clearly the words that Jesus had in mind when he described hell as the outer darkness, thrust into the outer darkness. And we see that these religious people, in some cases religious leaders, were firstly refusing to, to look to the, the teaching and testimony of, of, uh, of Scripture. Uh, they did not speak according to that word. And they don't speak according to the, the Bible because they, are, they have no dawn. They have no future and they are in the dark. These bishops who have spoken and clearly uh, are quite prepared to lay aside the clear teaching of the Old Testament and New Testament as being outmoded or... They, uh, or it, uh, and uh, the opinions of uh, previous generations and older generation, rather than actually seeing it as the word of God, these people have no, no light in them, they have no dawn, and they will be thrust into the outer darkness in the end. We have to understand, we need to um, be seeking that the clear word of God is passed on to the next generation that is passed on to this generation. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. Now can we turn on further in Isaiah chapter 30, um, where we see that the Lord speaks uh, to this situation of of religious leaders um, denying, uh, and and political leaders for that matter, denying the message of God. So that's on page uh, 702, 702. And you'll see the English Standard Version give it as a subheading, a rebellious people, talking about the people as a whole, but religious religious leaders in particular. And now go write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. Now... Notice, of course, this is what scripture is. It is a, it's written down, it was inscribed, it's there in the book. And it testifies to us today and it testify, as it testified it to 2,000, 3,000 years ago. For they are rebellious people, lying children, chilling children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. Who say to the seers, prophets in other words, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Is not that, is not that the message of these, these men to homosexual people who are just the same as us? They're just sinners. But instead of um, calling them to the life that God would have them, smooth words, just, just uh, um, glossing over where they're where their real problem lies. Smooth words. Prophesying illusions. 
Leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Let us no more hear about holiness, old-fashioned holiness. No, no, no. We don't want people repressed. We don't want people, uh, you know, the ignorant, prejudiced, bigoted, they'll use all those words, about just the clear teaching of Scripture, about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness, and rely on them. Therefore the iniquity shall beat you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. Now here is the, the, awesome, you know, uh, the awesome message of the Bible, which we should pass on. That men and women who defy the living Holy One, one day reality will catch up. One day the, the, the delusion will turn into a nightmare as what they thought was the way of life crushes them as the Lord punishes those who, who fall away from the living God. Now, by the way, this of course, I mean, this applies to me and you um, as sinners, um, homosexual people have one area of sin but we've got areas of sin just the same as them maybe more more than them who knows I don't know but the point is this we ourselves need to take seriously the reality of eternal judgment the reality of hell and we need to pass this on now um, I want to um, just um, to um, my last section to think about what we need to, you know, what we need um, to do in this situation. Now, I mentioned uh, I mentioned Wycliffe and the Lollards um, a century before Luther were prepared to lay down their lives for uh, uh, for the gospel and for the truth and for the, uh, for, the for for the for the for the Bible's truth. Well, let's ourselves, um, uh, you know. Ask ourselves, well, let's carry, if we've, been, if we've been witnessing for a few years, let's carry on all the more. Maybe you, maybe, you know, someone here online has, has never actually told anybody much about Christianity. They may have said, oh, yeah, I go to church. But you've never explained the simple facts of the gospel to someone. Well, do it. <laughs> Don't just, you know, confine yourself to saying, oh, I'm a Christian, but explain that. We're all sinners and that we need forgiveness and that Christ is the saviour. And he's available to anybody who will call upon him. Let's look at Romans 15 verse 20 when we think about darkest England that we live in today. Romans 15 and verse 20. Um, Paul, uh, oops. On page one one, can't get these pages open. Page one one um, two nine. Page one one two nine. Romans fifteen verse twenty. Paul says this, talking about his own ministry. Uh, verse 18 actually we'll read from I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed now note God uses people and Paul isn't boasting here he's just he's actually just speaking what any Christian should be prepared to speak about themselves what has accomplished what has God accomplished through me in the spreading of the gospel? Paul had a colossal, I mean we have these little minor you know, ministries of bringing the, uh, I say minor ministries, it's wonderful isn't it when someone becomes a Christian. But I mean we may talk in terms of you know, a few individuals becoming Christians for us, a few dozen or whatever. Paul had thousands of people become Christians through him. And uh, uh, so uh, He's speaking of uh, this, this, wonderful, this wonderful task, and he says, 
By the power of signs and wonders, that those are apostolic signs, his, ministry, his specific ministry. By the power of the Spirit of God, that's available to all of us. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the, the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now that's quite something. He fulfilled his ministry. Now, I want to say this. Paul says this to Archippus, doesn't he, in one of his letters. Tell him, fulfill his ministry. Fulfill, her, fulfill your ministry. His or her ministry. Fulfill them. What God has given you to do. And thus, verse 20, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Now, Paul had a geographical aim in mind, but I want to notice that the second half of 21 applies spiritually in in darkest England, because although... We can go to anywhere in England really easily. We can go to any part of London in an hour, you know, get on the... There are millions of people in London that have no understanding of the gospel. And they may have heard vague religious words about Jesus, but have no understanding at all about the fact that they are sinners, that the fact that that Christ uh, has come to save sinners, the fact that they may may, may be in danger of hell but also Christ can rescue them from them. What's the trajectory for the gospel in our church? What's the trajectory for the message of, uh, of the Lord of, of holiness? The twi- is it the twilight of the Reformation, where the, the gospel was recovered and spread through Europe? Or could it be the dawn of a new one? If we are to be wise people spreading knowledge, the wise spread knowledge, if we wish to be wise Christians in this age, we, we do know that the job of the church is to spread the knowledge of God. I mean, who is the faithful and wise servant, Jesus said, whom his master has sent over his household, who set over his household, to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Now, when Jesus gives that parable, he's talking about food, you know, because that's what the servant did. He made the beds and cooked the meals and did jobs. What has Jesus set the church to do? It is, as I mentioned on my sermon on Sunday, going to all the world and preach the gospel, to witness. Our priorities is to spread the knowledge of God. The wise man spreads that knowledge. Firstly, amongst our families, let's really seek to see our, our, our relations converted. If your relation is in another country, write them a letter. You know, FaceTime them. And obviously we have to do these things delicately and, and, and not rudely. We need to be um, kind in the way we present things. We must not be arrogant or insulting. But we do need to get across to our families, our relatives the gospel. We need to get likewise through to our neighbours, our colleagues at work, and our strangers that we meet uh, every day. And uh, I want to kind of uh, just finish by also a challenge for prayer. Um, there's not only been a decline of church attendance, but there has been a decline on, of children's work over uh, the past 50 or 60 years. Now, I don't mean by that uh, at all that there's been a decline in the quality of children's work. There are many fine people who do wonderful work with children's work. But I mean overall in the whole of Britain. There are fewer and fewer, fewer people that have either attended uh, Sunday, Sunday school or some other youth club or some other children's work um, than, um, than say 70 or 80 years ago. And uh, it used to be the case millions in Britain had been to Sunday school when young. Um, and certainly it was true 50 years ago that you, you talked to nearly anybody and they, they, they knew some basics of the Bible. But I guess the figure is extremely uh, small now for a population under 40. But the lips of the wise spread knowledge. We need to, we need to teach our children and our families. We need to teach the children, obviously, in our church. But we need to reach out and, and support people that are reaching out. People like William Randall done a great work over the years with the different children's work and camps he's been doing. 
may the Lord raise up thousands of people like William, more people. I mean, I know um, Martin and I remember with gratefulness uh, church leaders at a children's work when we were young and have all passed on many years ago. Um, but we need thousands more of these men and women um, who will reach out to the children. And uh, anyway, may the Lord uh, help us, you know, as, as we look at uh, the Reformation from time to time, from time to time I will be, I'll be, <laughs> if I'm bored everybody's stiff, I will from time to time be going through various personalities in the Reformation and uh, events that happened to try to, to, to see how Scripture applied and applies um, to both Reformation days and uh, the days we live in today. Um, but may the Lord uh, actually help us um, to really take um, the psalm, the psalm really seriously. Psalm, uh, sorry, Proverbs, Proverbs fifteen seven. The lips of the wise spread knowledge. Not so the heart of fools. Okay, I'm going to pray now, and then uh, we can have a discussion. And actually, it can be as wide ranging as you like. It obviously uh, uh, try sticking to this uh, the central theme of the spread of the knowledge of God, but. You may have thing, comments you want to make or things you want to say. Now, it's going to be on Zoom, so those of you who are listening online, if you want to now switch over to Zoom, I will take a minute or two to, to get it working, um, but hopefully I will be able to get it working, and then you'll be able to join us uh, for a discussion. Thanks. Okay. I'm just going to close in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, I do ask you that you will... Grant, we may not be in the twilight of the Reformation, but, Lord, the dawn of a new one. The dawn, Lord, of a time when the gospel will be taught in every area in Britain. But also, Lord, that uh, social media will be dominated by men and women testifying to what Christ has done in their life. And, uh, Lord, uh, teaching and uh, preaching uh, the message of, uh, of Jesus. Oh, Lord, we... Uh, we know, Lord, that uh, believers in Wycliffe's time, uh, Wycliffe himself must have looked with horror at the opposition all over Europe to what he was saying. And yet, Lord, uh, you blessed him, and you blessed those people that uh, were his disciples that went out into the, into the villages of England and, and, and uh, started churches. Uh, Lord, uh, thank you for that church in York that was still in existence uh, at the time of Henry VIII, an underground church. And thank you for that, Lord, and for the way you sustained these, these Christians from, from the brutal attacks that were upon them. Um, but we pray, Lord, for ourselves, Lord, that you will encourage us uh, to, to uh, trust you, that you can do great and wonderful things, which we've never seen before, uh, in this generation and in the next generation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.